real life superpowers. If you don't master your internal triggers, they will master you. Because all human behavior, all human behavior stems from a desire to escape discomfort. Time management is pain management. I would add weight management is pain management. Money management is pain management. All of it is an impulse control issue. It's about learning how to deal with discomfort in a healthier manner. Welcome to this interview with Nirial, an expert in behavioral design and author of the best-selling books, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. He's known as the habits guy, the one who can understand how to get app users to come back again and again. Bloomberg Businessweek named him the prophet of habit-forming technology. He's a former lecturer at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. He's also founded and sold two tech companies, and he actively invests in habit-forming products such as Eventbrite, Kahoot, Canva, Product Hunt, and more. In this interview, we explore Nir's insights on how to design products that create user habits, the ethical considerations of persuasive design, and his strategies for overcoming distraction and staying focused in today's always connected world. Let's dive in and learn from Nir's expertise. Real life. Superpowers. So, Nir, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Thanks. Great to be here. I understand you're in Singapore these days. I am. Yes, I've been here for about three years. Wow. What's that about? We just love it. It's just a beautiful place. Uh, we're just super happy here. And uh, we came for a little bit, and then we decided to extend our trip. And uh, yeah, we just kind of fell in love with it better. Are there a lot of people like, uh, like yourself that relocate to Singapore and love it as much? There's a lot of expats. Yeah, there's a really nice uh, community of expats. It's, you know, English is the national language here, so it's super easy to get around and, uh, you know, converse with locals. But there's a pretty big expat community as well. You know, as Israelis these days, it's interesting to find out about other places. <laughs> you guys are thinking about fleeing soon with all the craziness? No, we're staying optimistic. But, uh, you know, plan B, plan B. I, 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 I came here with Will, so, like, you know, I, I could have escaped if I wanted. I, I'm hugging the experience. I see, I see. So, Nir, you have a pretty unusual career path uh, with respect to really honing an expertise. And I'm curious how you landed where you are at the moment. Yeah, so let's see. So where, where do we begin? How early do you want to start? <laughs> as early as you feel makes sense. Uh, yeah, let's see. So I'm guessing a good chunk of your audience is Israeli. I'm Israeli as well. Uh, I was born there and left when I was three years old and uh, grew up in Florida. And uh, then made my way into the technology industry, uh, went to Stanford for business school. And um, after business school, I uh, started a company, helped start a company that was in the gaming and advertising industry. And I had this front row seat of many of these companies that were starting at the time, like Google and Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat. And I, uh, I learned a ton from these companies because I had many friends working at them and many of them were my clients from my last company. And so when my last company uh, was acquired, I had some time on my hands and I thought I was going to start another business. And I had this hypothesis that the companies of the future, and this was back in 2012, so the, the Apple iPhone was only about four years old at the time, 
Uh, and I had a, a strong conviction that the companies that would really make a difference in the world would be the ones that, that changed consumer habits, because I could see that screens were shrinking. Meaning as we went from desktop screens to laptops, to mobile devices, to wearable devices, and now to auditory devices like the Amazon Alexa, you know, you, you, these devices uh, got smaller and smaller, which meant that you had less real estate, less space for what's called external triggers, you know, visual triggers that tell you what to do. And so I, I realized back then that what would matter is that you build a habit. Because if you're not on someone's home screen, for example, on their phone, and they forget to use you, you're dead. Your product might as well not even exist. So I looked around and I said, okay, I'm going to start a, a habit forming product. How do I do that? And I didn't see such a book. <laughs> so I started to research about it and uh, blogged about it. And after a couple of years of doing that, I got an email from a former professor of mine, Baba Shiv at Stanford, who said, hey, I really like your work. What do you think about teaching a class together? And I said, sure, let's do it. And so he kind of gave me carte blanche and he let me kind of come up with this curriculum that later turned into a class I taught at the design school at Stanford and later kind of became my book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Uh, and I didn't intend for that to become my, my next job, but I really enjoy teaching others and I do a lot of consulting. Uh, the way I make money is through investing. So I invest uh, solely in companies that use my methodology in the Hook model. And I've invested in about 35 companies to date, six unicorns, and uh, all companies that I believe use the hook model. Uh, and so that's where I can add value is, is when companies actually you know, utilize this methodology. And so that's all about how do you build good habits through technology, right? How can we help people live happier, healthier, more productive lives through the technology we use? Then the other side, of course, of the coin is what happens when we overuse, right? Not the same technology. Nobody wants, you know, no, nobody's getting addicted to SaaS enterprise software, <laughs> right? Uh, I wish people would get uh, hooked to exercise apps or money-saving apps. So that we're not talking about those products. That's not a problem. The problem is when we overuse media specifically, right? Whether it's social media, legacy media, whether it's print media, radio media, TV media, media basically is what we overuse. And so what I wanted to do was to really dive into this problem of distraction. And uh, this is a problem I had myself. And so five years after I wrote Hooked, I published Indistractable, which is about how to control your attention and choose your life. And so I really believe I'm a techno optimist. I really believe we can have our cake and eat it too. We can build good habits through the technology we use and we can break the bad habits as well. And your book, your initial one, Hooked, became sort of a Bible uh, for some tech giants who it could be said that used some of the teachings uh, for evil. And I love how you also say that it's not a superpower if it can't be used for evil. But I'm curious if you feel in a sense that Indistractable was sort of um, trying to remedy some negative implication of the book. And if you feel if and if you could foresee that this could be abused, well, I've never had any evidence of anyone abusing uh, what I've what I've written. Uh, if you have any, please let me know. I'd love to know. <laughs> I've never seen any evidence. I'm thinking more uh, from the angle of, for example, if you've seen the movie The Social Dilemma. Yeah, I was in. I was interviewed for it. I, I sat down with them for three hours. Oh, okay, amazing. So I didn't watch it before this interview and I didn't remember this, but that's really interesting. Like, the, Did they, in a sense, hint that your book was helping this? So I sat down with them for three hours uh, and gave them the answer to the problem. 
but I'm not in the movie. I'm in the credits. I'm in the credits, right. but I'm not, they didn't use any of the footage. Why? Because it didn't make for a story that fit their narrative. You see, what they want you to do, what they want you to believe is that you're helpless. You're addicted. Your brain is being hijacked. That's what the words they say. Hijacking is what those bastards did to us on 9-11. It's not Candy Crush, <laughs> right? It's disrespectful to, to call it hijacking. Are you kidding me? It's an app, for God's sake. Get a hold of yourself. That's entertainment. The entertainment is like, you know, working on fear. They want rating. It's not like that. Exactly. The conclusion would exactly. make it just say, you know, practical. Exactly. And practical doesn't sell. And let's, let's put aside the fact that the goddamn documentary was distributed on Netflix, <laughs> right? where the CEO of Netflix said that his biggest competitor is sleep. Good job, guys. <laughs> but but wait, you know, you know, that's a really good point. It's so obvious, the sarcasm that's happening. You know, like like a lot of the, the you know, they say one thing, but they're just distributing on the same thing. It's like a casual thing right now to do. And my question is this. No one wants people to know the hack, okay? But they just, you know, they want to, they want to give them a sense of control, but too much fear. So what, what I'm interested in is when you say you invest in those companies that put your methodology... How do you get them committed to that idea? Well, so I only work with companies and entrepreneurs who have to hook people, right? So many companies don't, right? If you buy a product one time, you don't need to build a habit, right? You buy it one time, car insurance, right? You buy car insurance, you, you have it, you don't use it unless, God forbid, something terrible happens. Uh, cybersecurity software, you don't use it, right? You just buy it and it sits there. So that, those are more what's called a sales-driven company, uh, as opposed to what we now see many more companies, they're called product-led right? Product-led growth versus sales-driven. And sales-driven is typically top-down, right? You sell to whatever, you know, the, the chief procurement officer or whatever, uh, and then everybody has to use it whether they like it or not. And now what we see is many more companies, whether it's enterprise products, of course, consumer web products, what we see is the consumerization of IT, where whether it's products like Slack or GitHub or Salesforce, right? These products were bought bottom, bottom up, and so that's really what we see much more of. And uh, that's the kind of product that if you don't use, right, when you think about enterprise SaaS software, when you think about health tech, when you think about fintech, when you think about educational technologies, if people don't use the product, if they don't get hooked to using it, if they don't build a habit, the company's out of, out of business. And so what I do is to help people build persuasive technology. Now, persuasive technology is very different from coercive technology, right? Persuasion is when we help people do the things that they themselves want to do, but for lack of good product design, don't do, right? I wish I could exercise every day, but it's really hard. I really want to learn a new language, but there's no good way to do it that's effort, that, that, that requires you know, the kind of effort I'm willing to commit. Uh, I want to save money, but it's too complicated, right? So what persuasive design does is say, hey, guess what? We can get people hooked to healthy habits by building, ha building these, these hooks into our products to create these behaviors that people themselves want to do. That's persuasive design. That's perfectly ethical. What is unethical is called coercive design. Coercion is when you get people to do something they did not want to do, something they regret doing. And so this is, of course, it's unethical. It's also really bad for business, right? If you coerce someone into doing something, not only are they not going to do business with you anymore, but if they look back and say, hey, I didn't want to do that. This is, you tricked me. They're going to tell all their friends that you suck and that people shouldn't do business with you either. So we never want to use coercive practices. Not only is it bad for business, it's bad ethics. We want to use persuasive tactics, persuasive technology. But of course, you know, people like the people who made The Social Dilemma 
and the people who love in writing about in the in traditional media how bad social media is they only talk about how you know that the, the, they are actually using coercive tactics to coerce you into thinking that technology is evil why why does the traditional media do that it's their competition right the newspaper and the cable companies are terrified about social media because it gives everyone a voice Right, and I'm not saying social media is perfect. I'm telling you, in indistractable, how to fucking not use it. <laughs> right, so like, I'm not, I'm not an advocate for using this stuff more. I'm saying, cool down. There's nuance here. We can get the best out of these technologies without letting them get the best of us. And don't believe the traditional media. Certainly, don't believe the schmucks who wrote the social dilemma movie, who did it to get attention using fear and loathing. Right, they interviewed me for three hours. I told them exactly the solution to the problem they're they're talking about. And they didn't even include a second of my content. Now, why, why did they do that? The, way, the reason they did that, it's like if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, you, ha you have a terrible disease, a terrible disease. Uh, oh, that's, that's awful. Well, do you have a, a cure? Yes, we have the cure. Can you give me the cure? No, I can't give you the cure. Well, that's malpractice. <laughs> the problem is always it's like every generation saying, listen, it can't be worse. You know, like, you know. That the, the social can't be worse than a subjective um, uh, a newspaper that a, a, a monarch can use and manipulate. It should be better, at, at least that. So it's like every stage is the fear of the change itself. But on that right, sense, right. what's amazing about your opportunity is I don't think understand, maybe I just don't understand how big that is. The, the moment that the technology is implemented and it doesn't have to be perfect. And then you can always get the technology better and better, as opposed to having a tied, I don't know, laundry, um, you know, cleaner. So the smell is one and I just smell something else and I'll get it. You can make it all the psychology of it or moreover, the product more um, usable. Okay. And more adaptive and more flexible. It's, it's the method itself is like hyper uh, retention. The potential is unlimited. Yeah, it's, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're talking about making products people want to use, right? That's, that's the goal here. We're simply making a product that is used because people want to use it, not because they have to use it. Uh, that's, that's really the goal. We're excited to be collaborating with the Israeli website CTEC, owned by Kalkalist, Israel's leading business newspaper. CTEC is the gateway of the Israeli high tech to the tech world and vice versa. If you're not already a regular reader, we strongly recommend that you check out kalkalistech.com, C-A-L-C-A-L-I-S-T-E-C-H.com to stay up to date on all high-impact stories from the Israeli tech scene. Do, do you have like a, give me like one of, you know, businesses are like, you know, kids, give me one of the, the proud kids that you saw that impact, uh, you know, like surprisingly fast or, or where someone didn't believe that it would work that well and it worked well. You mean companies that have used the hook model? Yeah, like you know, one of your like yeah. first excited, exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you one company that I'm super proud of to have invested in a company called Sunnyside, and Sunnyside uh, is a is an app that helps people break the habit of over consuming alcohol by building an, a habit with this app. And so it's, it's beautiful, right? It's for people who don't want to stop drinking altogether. It turns out that most drinkers uh, uh, you know, don't want to stop drinking. And it's a myth that you're either sober or drunk, right? That's not true. There's a, lot, there's a gray area there. You don't have to stop altogether. This is my basic philosophy with technology too. I don't believe in these people who say, oh, go on a digital detox. Stop using the technology. Well, 
thanks, stupid. I'm going to get fired from my job. I have to use technology. And I think it's very similar to, to you know, what you hear in the diet industry. You see here people saying extreme this, never eat carbs again, or do this, you know, fat free, or that. it's every, every day it's a different, a different uh, uh, fad. And, and it's the same thing when it comes to alcohol. You're either, you're either sober or you're drunk. Well, that's not true. And so what Sunnyside did was to create this app to help people moderate their drinking. So if you feel like, hey, sometimes I drink too much, you can build a habit with this ha app. You get hooked to this app that uses my hook model. Uh, I, I have to give them all the credit. I sound like I'm taking credit. Absolutely not, right? The, the hook model is, is easy. The execution is the hard part. So these guys deserve all the credit in the, in the world. And they're doing incredibly well. They have helped. I, I, I saw a statistic lately that they have uh, saved in the, in the tens of millions of drinks, not drunk, <laughs> by helping people reduce their consumption of alcohol and forming healthier habits. That's a great KPI. And, and how can people take more control over their lives? I know you break that down really great and indestructible, but for people who are listening and have a feeling that they're addicted, and maybe that's something that's arguable too. Are they addicted or do they choose this and can stop at any moment? But for all those who just find themselves unintentionally scrolling Facebook without even knowing when they opened it, what's the first step that they can take? Okay, so the first step you can take is to realize that you have power. To realize that you have power. The, the, it, it's not easy. Okay, I will acknowledge it's not easy. You know, I used to be clinically obese. Uh, I used to have a real problem with food. I still have to watch what I eat very carefully. Um, uh, you know, I, I, addiction, there are people who have been addicted in my family before, and I, I, you know, I, I know what that's like. I've studied addiction for years. And I will tell you that we overuse this term. We overuse this term. An addiction is not, oh, I like it a lot, okay? The, even the word addiction comes from the Latin word addictio, which means slave. And so people have this mindset that being addicted to something means you are a slave to it. Now, some people truly are addicted. About 3% to 5% of the population have an addiction. What is an addiction? What's the definition? The definition of addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So it's something that causes you harm, that despite you wanting to stop, it's a consistent dependency. You can't stop even if you want to stop, and it is causing you harm. Now, addiction is a pathology, okay? It's a disease, and a very small percentage of the population has it. Now, the vast majority of people use products that are potentially addictive. Lots of things are addictive, right? Uh, many of us have a glass of wine with dinner, but we're not all alcoholics, right? We have sex. We're not sex addicts, right? So it's, it's ridiculous to say it's just the product. Oh, social media is addictive. Yeah, you know what? Because everything that solves pain, okay? Any analgesic, any analgesic is potentially addictive to somebody. There are people who get addicted to Tylenol because it solves pain. It's an analgesic. There's people who have been documented to get addicted to drinking water. I'm not kidding. In the medical literature, there are cases of people getting addicted to water. So it's clearly not some, and, and by the way, we all have a dependency on water right? Are we addicted to water? No, <laughs> clearly it's not so simple. So I think what we need to stop first and foremost, if you ask, okay, what do we do? How do we regain control? We need to realize that we live in the most spoiled, privileged age in human history. It is a luxury to say that we have too many calories, that we have to watch our weight because for 200,000 years, the human race has struggled with starvation, for God's sakes. 
famine used to be part of the human existence for 200,000 years. This is the first generation in history where more people die of being overweight than underweight. That's amazing, right? Like we should have been having a party every single day to celebrate that fact. And guess what? One of the things that we also have an abundance of is information and access to entertainment. Because for 200,000 years, we were hella bored, right? Boredom was a big problem. This is the first generation in history where for everyone who is privileged enough to live in the first world, we have access to the world's information, entertainment at our fingertips. But it makes me distracted. Well, come on now. <laughs> like, wake up and realize that the price of progress, the price of living in the greatest age in human history, which may not last, right? There's no guarantee that we're going to stay in this age, right? There's all kinds of threats to the amazing world we live in. All kinds of crazy people who want to tear things down. We need to be very careful about guarding it. I'm not saying it's going to stay this way forever. But at this very moment, if you are privileged enough to be listening to this podcast on your fancy pants iPhone, realize you're lucky to have this problem, right? You're not a victim. Stop victimizing yourself and realize that you have agency. You have control. So what do we do? Okay, here's some real steps, all right? Step number one, realize you have power if you believe you do. If you say we're addicted, it's hijacking our brains, you've already lost. You're done. And words matter, by the way. If you tell yourself something, then your brain comprehends that as is. Absolutely. It's, uh, Henry Ford said it best. He said, whether you believe you can or you cannot, you're right. Okay. So first of all, believe you can do something about this problem. The next step is to you have to learn how to master what's called internal triggers. What I learned in my uh, five years writing this book, and by the way, it took me five years to write this book because I kept getting distracted. Right? I wrote this book for me more than anyone else. I needed to solve this problem for myself. So I, it took me so long to write this book because I didn't know these tactics. And so when I learned the first step to becoming indistractable is to master internal triggers. Now, how, why is this so important? Turns out that 90% of the time we get distracted, 90%, it's not because of our phones buzzing and booping. It's not about these pings, dings, and rings. Those are called external triggers. Those account for 10% of our distractions. 90% of the time we get distracted, we get distracted by internal triggers. What are internal triggers? Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, anxiety. This is the cause of 90% of our distractions. And this, this isn't something I made up. This, these are studies that have found when they check in with people throughout the day, why did you get distracted? 90% of the time, it's not their phones. It's what's happening inside their head, right? So that means that if you don't master your internal triggers, they will master you. Because all human behavior, all human behavior stems from a desire to escape discomfort. Time management is pain management. I would add weight management is pain management. Money management is pain management. All of it is an impulse control issue. It's about learning how to deal with discomfort in a healthier manner. So that's the first step to becoming indistractable. I'll teach you. This is the most important lesson of the book. Very few other books I've ever seen cover it. It's about learning to deal with discomfort. So you're not constantly running towards distraction. If you sit down with your family, and I, I saw this in Israel as a crazy, every table, there was a family, and everybody at the, at the table was on their stupid phones while sitting at the table to have dinner. Drives me crazy. If you sit down at the table and you can't have a conversation with your family, I would love to tell you it's the phone. It's not the phone. It's that you can't handle that discomfort of being bored for five minutes. That's the problem. And if you don't learn how to deal with that discomfort, it's gonna be something else. It's gonna be the TV, it's gonna be the radio, it's gonna be something 
unless you learn to learn uh, live with that discomfort and know what to do with it. So that's step number one. I just wanted to say that I love how in the book you call this fubbing, like avoiding people because you're fubbing, snubbing yeah. with the phone. Is that something that you made up or is that a thing? No, it's a term that, uh, that uh, an ad agency actually made up for an ad campaign. Fubbing is phone snubbing. And what the good news is, actually, we see more and more people realize this is a problem, right? So um, uh, the older generation is kind of stuck, right? My, my dad, for example, my, my dad uh, grew up in Mechmolet in the 1940s and 50s, and there was one telephone for the entire village, right? And so like everybody on the block, if the phone rang, oh my God, he had to go, they, they had to go answer it. So till this very day, if his cell phone rings... He can't help it. He's like, you got to pick it up. <laughs> he can't help my it. My grandma, exactly the same. Exactly. The older generation. But for me, like if we had a call right now, of course, my phone is silenced. And if there was a call, guess what? It goes to voicemail. It's not a big deal, right? Because the younger generation learns these tools. And so that's what I see when I get hired to give a presentation on Indistractable. I'll go into a boardroom and there'll be, you know, 40, 50 people around the room. And guess who's on their phone? Is it the, the millennials? No, it's a big boss. The big boss wants to show everybody, I'm so busy. I got to check my phone all the time, right? And then they wonder, why is my organization so distracted? Why do they keep using their devices so much? Like, how would you say uh, you would you would find out if it's boredom, anxiety, pain, whatever? Like, there is a trigger. What is it? Right. So this, this is the most important first step, because if it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, you will always get distracted if you don't understand the root cause of the problem. The root cause of the problem is not your phone. The root cause of the problem is the sensation you are trying to escape. So this is exactly what there's a whole section in the book, you know, a, a, a few dozen pages on exactly what to do. So it starts with identifying what is that internal trigger? If we just keep glossing over it, and you never hear this, right? You never, you, the newspapers, when they're criticizing Facebook and Instagram, they never say, hey, what are we escaping, folks? Like, why can't we sit, you know, uh, uh, why, why can't we sit for a few minutes with our thoughts? Why do we constantly have to be reaching for something? Why do we have to turn on the TV all the time? Why do we have to check our phones all the time? It's not the devices, it's that we're escaping a sensation. So the most important thing you can do is to learn to identify what is that sensation. And what I learned in my, in my research of the book is that high performers, they feel the same discomfort everyone else does, right? They also feel bored, lonesome, indecisive, stressed, anxious, but they do something different with it. They take that discomfort and they use it to push them towards traction rather than trying to escape it with distraction. So that's the critical skill. It's learning what is that sensation and then having a practice in place to know what to do with that sensation so that it serves you as opposed to hurts you. And then the next stages? Okay, so the next step is after we master the internal triggers, we have to make time for traction. You know, I oftentimes hear from people who say, oh my gosh, I'm so distracted. And did you see what, what's happening in the news? And my kids want this and my boss wants this. And oh my God, it's everything's so distracting these days with the technology. And I say, wow, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. What did you get distracted from today? Show me your calendar. And when they show me their calendar, you know what I typically see? Nothing. Nothing maybe a, a meeting or a dentist appointment on the calendar. Most people don't schedule their day. Well, what the hell? If you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you. And how dare you say you got distracted when you don't know what you got distracted from? Let me say it again. If you don't know what, if you didn't plan something, what did you get distracted from? You can't say you got distracted unless you know what you got distracted from. So that means unless you're a child or retired, you got to plan your day. Right? It's part of being a grown up. We have to plan our day because that is the only way that you can look at your calendar and say, ah, 
That's traction. What I said I was going to do, by the way, it can be fun things, right? I want you to plan the fun, fun things. You want to go on social media? Go on social media. You want to play video games? Put it on your schedule. You want to watch Netflix? Awesome. Put it in your schedule. Because if you do it on your schedule and according to your values, it's traction. It's not distraction. It's traction as long as you plan for it. The problem is people go through their days and they don't feel productive. They feel like they were distracted. They did this, that, and the other. And then you know they, 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 they didn't plan out what they, how they actually wanted to spend their time. So this isn't a practice I made up. It's been verified in thousands of peer-reviewed studies. It uses a technique called setting an implementation intention, which is very simply saying what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And I mean for every minute of your day, to the time you wake up, to the time you go to bed, you're going to slip up. It's part of the process. You're not going to follow it to every single second. It's okay. And I tell you what to do about that. I still slip up from time to time. That's okay. But you have to set your intentions for how you want to spend your time in advance, or you can't say you got distracted. I'm in awe about like, you literally see nothing like, like not like three meetings and they have too much or three things that they're going to do. It's like nothing on the calendar. That's like, that's a thing. Well, no, maybe they have meetings. Okay, that, this is another problem, by the way. Sometimes I see people who are super schedules with only meetings, right? And that's what's called re reactive work. Reactive Israelis. Yeah, exactly. Reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to meeting requests, always being reactive. And I get it. That's part of some people's uh, um, everybody's day. Everybody has some amount of reactive work. The trouble is that you can get habituated to reactive work. I see this all the time. I don't know what to do right now. Let me check email. So you're letting your email inbox dictate what you should do with your time. You're essentially getting, uh, giving other people access to decide your schedule for you, right? Which is crazy. You have to have time in your schedule to go into email. And you also, so the other big mistake with reflective work, with, with uh, only doing reactive work, not only do people get very lazy and they always just go to their inbox whenever they don't know what else to do, is that you have to plan some time in your day for what's called reflective work. You have reactive work and reflective work. Reactive work, yeah, sorry, reflective work is the kind of work that you can only do without distraction. Planning, thinking, strategizing must be done without distraction. So if you have your entire day booked for reactive work and you have not booked that time with yourself to think for God's sakes, you're going to run real fast in the wrong direction. So it's absolutely critical that you schedule that time as well. And not only schedule the time for work, I want you to schedule time for yourself, right? Based on your values. What are values? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. Most people don't ask themselves, what do I want to become? What kind of person do I want to be? And then they wake up five, 10 years later and say, what did I do with my life? I'm, I'm not living the kind of life I planned on living that I dreamed of living. Well, because you didn't sit down and ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time? So how would you spend your time? How would the, sorry, how would the person you want to become spend their time taking care of themselves? Do you want time to read? Is that important to you? Do you want time to take care of your health? Is that important to you? I'm not saying it has to be important to you, right? You need to dictate your values, not me. But if it is important to you, book the time on your schedule. And it can include video games and Facebook and whatever else you find fun. If that's part of your values, great. But do it with intent. Don't do it in the last minute. Put it on your schedule. Time with your friends, right? Time with your family. How many of us leave it up to the last minute? And then you know what happens. Oh, yeah, let's get coffee sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that doesn't happen. <laughs> and so we lose touch with people, right? Our friendships starve to death. They don't, friendships don't die, they starve. And, and it starves because we don't make that time for the important relationships in our life. With my wife, for example, 
I used to give her whatever scraps of time are left over, right? After work, after my other obligations, okay, you get whatever scraps of time are left over. That's terrible. She's the most important person in my life. I have to make time on my schedule for her or we're not going to have the kind of relationship that we both want. That's so beautiful. And I also would like to argue that the tech being blamed uh, isn't really accurate in the sense that there would always be something else that would replace tech. And I even speak based on my experience um, about 20 years ago when I was in the army, uh, there wasn't really so much internet around. And I had this notebook uh, and I was a young officer and I was a bit stressed. And in my notebook, I always had my tasks, my to-do list. And I think I took it out of my pocket once every 10 minutes. And I think that's, maybe that that's a little extreme, but I don't think it's um, far from what other people are experiencing in one sense or another with tech just replacing that. So I think this was always there. Right, right. I mean, we know Plato, the Greek philosopher, 2,500 years ago, talked about akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interest. And people have always been saying, ah, oh, kids these days, they're so distracted with the latest and greatest. I mean, literally Socrates talked about how the written word, right, this crazy new technology of writing things down was going to enfeeble men's minds. So it is absolutely nothing new. And, and when I was a kid, we were called couch potatoes and they were so scared about Super Mario Brothers and pinball machines. Like, oh my God, that's so terrible. Uh, before that, it was radio. I mean, every new technology people flip out about. And look, if, if, if Facebook today were to shut down, right? No more Instagram, no more WhatsApp. You think people are gonna go back to reading Chaucer in their spare time and Shakespeare? No, <laughs> we're gonna gossip. We're gonna do all kinds of other shit to waste our time. And so that's why it's so important. If you want to control your time and attention, you have to learn these tactics. Now, I'm not saying the world isn't more distracting. It's certainly more distracting. The, again, the price of progress is that we have all these temptations, but that certainly doesn't mean we're powerless. There's so much we can do. Nir, I, I, have, to, I have to advocate a different side. Like I'm, I'm saying this, like I'm, this is a, being that person that schedules, like you said, is, is you know, is, is probably like the, the, the uh, holy grail of, uh, of anybody, right? So everybody wants to be that person, right? Um, and of course you can't do all of it and you have to do even 70% of doing that is amazing. But the thing is, I find maybe, maybe this is a little bit uh, also personal or from what I'm seeing also in a lot of entrepreneurs especially, is that from COVID, um, people don't work on location, okay? Right, and yeah. it sort of changed like the, the method is perfect. The only problem is that there's people involved. Oh, of course. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? So like the problem is, you know, like the, the self-reliant parts of it is great, but then you, you know, you have to, you're on, you're on both sides. You have the advantage or the disadvantage, right? So let's say you were in a cash flow problem, right? And you have to put in that meeting and it goes against something else. And then it, you know, everything else goes downward spiral, or even an easier one, you know, like uh, take um, um, take building that structure and building a too high of a goal that everything falls down because, you know, things has to change. Or even the simple thing of just making a meeting that which is multiple people that goes over your time that you reflect every week and you have to change that up and then it becomes frustrating. So what I'm trying to say, these are three different problems but that's what scares me that you're interpreting a methodology that's actually not in the book, <laughs> right? Okay, uh, what right, I right. said was a distillation, not your fault, but I gave you a distillation of the highlights, right? There's a lot more to this. It's like if I said, um, 
you know, how do you, how do you do heart surgery? Oh, well, you just cut open the patient and you fix their heart. What's the big deal? So there's a lot more to it, right? It took me five years of research for it. So there's a lot of, there's, and, and all your questions are valid. And frankly, I've heard all the excuses. I've literally heard my kid. What about my kids? What about my dog? What about the funding? What about the, this, what about the, that? I've heard it all. <laughs> so the part of the answer, it, uh, let me, let me play. So the answer is that your job is to be a scientist, not a drill sergeant. A scientist, not a drill sergeant. Our drill sergeant says, you have to do this, you have to do that, and if you don't, you're bad. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you need to be a scientist. What does a scientist do? A scientist makes a hypothesis, right? They run an experiment, they look at the results, and then they run the next experiment based on the results of that experiment, right? And they do that again and again and again until they establish truth. That's the scientific process. That's what we do with our schedule. So what we do is we make our schedule for the week or for the day, however amount of time you think you have transparency into your time. About 80% of people can do it within a week's time, okay? They can say, okay, here's what my schedule basically will look like for myself. I want to wake up around this time. I want to eat breakfast with my family. I want to exercise. I need to, get to, I need to drive to work. I'm going to have time uh, for meetings. I'm going to have time for email. I'm going to have time for this, that, the other, whatever the case. They make that for the week ahead. Then you live that life, okay? You live that life. And you ask yourself, where did I go off track? And your goal with the next day is to make it an easier schedule to follow, an easier schedule with follow. So you're constantly refining this day after day after day. You don't stick with it and say, oh, I made the schedule once. Now I'm done forever. No, no, no. You're constantly refining it. And it takes a little bit more work up front. The very first time you do it, maybe it'll take you 20 minutes. I've been doing it for years now takes me less than 10 minutes a week. Every Sunday at 8 p.m., I have it scheduled on my calendar. I look at the week that just went by, and I look at the week ahead, and I make adjustments. And I say, oh, you know what? I've got that meeting. You know what? Last time I met with Moisha, that meeting went over a little bit. Is that is that something that is, wow, what a surprise? You know what? The meeting with Moisha is always go over a little bit. Traffic. People tell me, how can you plan for traffic? What if your kid gets sick? How can you plan? Well, guess what? Kids get sick. Traffic happens. Why can't you plan buffer time? If Barack Obama was going to come to town, Oprah Winfrey was going to come to town and say, I want to meet you at 8 a.m. for dinner, or I'm sorry, for breakfast, 8 a.m. we're going to meet for breakfast. And do you say to yourself, oh my God, uh, Tel Aviv traffic, oh, so bad. Sorry, I'm a half an hour late. No, you leave early. <laughs> right? Of course you do. You see babies, sick babies, you know, like everywhere running around, you know, yeah. homeless. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you you plan for this kind of stuff. You, oh, my kid got sick. Hey, guess what? Kids get sick. You can make contingency plans. If if there's a brain surgeon performing you know, very important life-saving surgery and that brain surgeon's uh, kid gets sick, do they barge into the emergency room and say, doctor, doctor, you have to stop operating. Your kid's sick. No, the doctor has contingency plans. They make arrangements to make sure that when the kid gets sick, somebody will do something. Yet, if it's a mother who's trying to start a home business, somehow her work is, oh, no, no, not so important. She needs to be on call for no matter what. We don't respect our own time. We think that somehow other people's time is always more important than what we need to do, right? And that's a critical mistake because this is what keeps us from being our best. We say other people, other people, other people, and we don't put in the time for ourselves to do our best work. I like that. So it's all excuses at the end of the day, and maybe some excuses are based on uh, lack of confidence, but at the end of the day, I think your key message here is that we're all 
able to take control of our lives and we're choosing not to and maybe blaming it on you know input but probably these days or these years technology yeah exactly exactly that if we believe we are capable then we are and so most people the, the fact of the matter is look work that matters is hard work that matters is hard right if you want to get better at something it's going to hurt Right? You want to build your muscles. You want to lose weight. You want to write a book. You want to build a business. You want to raise a family. You want to have a great relationship with your spouse. It's going to take work. We are so allergic to pain in our society. We think that any discomfort, I need to pop a pill because you know, I'm not allowed to feel pain. Something must be, somebody must have harmed me if I feel uncomfortable. And that is complete and utter nonsense that discomfort is part of being a grown-up. And we need to deal with that discomfort in a healthy way. If we always try and escape every little boo-boo, we never build our resiliency to do hard things. So what happens is whenever we experience some kind of discomfort, we always try and escape it with something, typically with distraction. And of course, it's much easier to say, oh, Mark Zuckerberg did it to me, than to acknowledge, hey, you know what? This is hard work. So I've written two bestsellers. I've written thousands of articles. I'll tell you, Writing is never easy. I, when people tell me, oh, I want to get into a writing habit, I have no idea what they're talking about. Writing is hard freaking work, <laughs> right? And all I want to do when I'm writing is go check email or read the news or scroll social media or do anything but doing the writing because it's hard. So what do I have to do? I have to learn these techniques of mastering the internal triggers, making time for traction, which we talked about, hacking back external triggers. We didn't get to. That's the third step of becoming indistractable, hacking back the external triggers and preventing distraction with packs. And when I use these four techniques in concert, I still mess up from time to time. I still go off track, but that's okay because an indistractable person is not the person who never gets distracted. An indistractable person is the kind of person who says, hey, I understand why I got distracted so I can do something about it. It's very important. Poila Coelho had a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. It's a beautiful quote. So distractible people keep getting distracted. Right? How many times can we blame social media? How many times can we blame our phones? How many times can we blame what's happening in the news before we said, okay, Diana, enough, right? What are we going to do about it? So a distractible person keeps getting distracted by the same thing again and again, whereas an indistractable person says, okay, you got me once. I fell off the track one time. It's not going to happen again. I'm going to make sure I take steps today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. That same scientist, um, do you practice mindfulness? It depends what you mean by mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness is uh, goes by is a is a practice that goes by the same name but has many different functions. What what do you mean specifically? Uh, I'm talking about uh, meditating, observing your thoughts, um, and I'm asking in the context of uh, you know identifying the trigger and being uncomfortable. Absolutely. So observing the sensation is super important. Uh, I don't I don't meditate. I, I meditated every day for a whole year for 365 days. I tried it, and then I. It wasn't for me, right? Some people benefit a lot. I think there's a little bit too much uh, dogma around meditation where people think it's like the cure-all for everything. And frankly, there's some problems that you can't meditate away. Sometimes there's a problem. You have to get up off your butt, stop meditating, and fix the source of the discomfort. Uh, but as a tactic to deal with discomfort that you can't change, right? I think it's a beautiful tactic. If it's a practice that works for you, great. I, I don't talk about it much in Indistractable, uh, but I think it can be a benefit. Of course, if it's a practice that works for you, keep doing it. I don't think it's something that necessarily everybody has to adopt. But but being uh, uh, bringing awareness to what that sensation is and labeling it, 
you can call that mindfulness. I, I would call that just awareness, right? If you can give a name to it and say, you know what? I feel the urge to go check my device right now because I'm bored, right? Or I'm lonely or I'm stressed. If you can name that sensation and just write it down, just writing down, I'm feeling stressed. Nobody has to see that. But what you're doing is you're giving agency to yourself by saying, this is just a feeling. That's all it is, just a feeling. And so, you know, just, just like, uh, you know, a- any feeling, a feeling crests and then subsides. It doesn't last forever. And so if you can ride that wave, if you can do what's called surf the urge and realize that in a few seconds, that sensation is going to be gone, right? If you know what tactics to use to deal with it, for example, when I'm writing and all I want to do is go check something online or, you know, uh, go check email or social media or whatever, what I will do is I take a pause, I take a deep breath. And I tell myself, I repeat this mantra. The mantra is, this is what it feels like to get better. This is what it feels like to get better. That's, that's my mantra. Feel free to steal it. You, you can make up your own. But it reminds me that, you know what? Something feeling hard is a sign it's working, right? It means it's important to me, but I'm going to do it anyway. Whereas a lot of people, they interpret that, that sensation of, oh, this is difficult. They make up all these stupid stories like, oh, I, I, ha- I have a very distractible personality or I can't pay attention well, or maybe it's my soul telling me that I'm not cut out for this. This is nonsense, right? We're just making up these narratives to excuse us from having to do the work, <laughs> which needs to be difficult if it's going to be of value. So by repeating a mantra to yourself, that is actually empowering as opposed to something that leads you astray can be one of, of, of many different techniques. There's a, over a dozen just with that section on, on mastering internal triggers, but that's one that I use almost every day. But then like, I'm really curious on a practical level because you write a lot. And part of my writing proce- process a lot of the time is sort of being intuitive and thinking of all these things and connecting all these dots and and. A very uh, integral part of that is also going to Google to find something or sometimes going to my notes uh, where I have a lot of quotes from books that I read over the years. And that by nature isn't staying exactly focused, but it's also, it, to me, it feels completely in the zone. And I'm wondering if, um, if you see that very differently. So, so it, that's up to you. So you have to define what is traction and what is distraction. So if for you, writing involves going on Google and doing research, and that's very productive and, and, and effective for you, awesome. Keep doing it. That's great. For me, when I write, there's different kinds of writing. Like for me, I really have to separate writing from research because if I do research, I'll go down that rabbit hole of another study and another click and another headline, and 30, 40 minutes later, I will forget what I'm even freaking writing about. <laughs> so what I have to do is schedule time for research. I research, research, research. Then I have it. And I need to go process that information into the writing. So that's my process. But if that's not your process, if you're not struggling with distraction, like if I did what you do, I would get distracted. I wouldn't do, I wouldn't stay focused on what I said I was going to do, which is do the freaking writing. But if it works for you, keep doing it, right? Again, I'm not telling people what to do with their time. If you want to play video games all day long, you should do that. What I want to help people do is whatever they say they're going to do. And don't forget to be a scientist, right? So if that, you know, you can always get that better. See, that was my implementation already to the, how was, how was I doing there? Nice work. <laughs> First of all, I'd love the quote if, I, if a mistake is done over once it's a decision. I haven't heard that one. And that is like, you know, I've made a few decisions then. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I can't take credit for it. I have to give credit to Paola Coelho who said that quote. But definitely that, that like, that's an amazing one. Um, 
<laughs> I have a question for you. So that you like it's so great if like you have control so much control right and 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 control is like also the confidence of getting control so there's there's one thing that i'm missing from your story okay mm-hmm. how did you like how did this become a purpose to hack okay which is incredible because you want like your purpose between is like like hacking um getting hooked right So, so there must be something that you were hooked on that, or some reason that that was the purpose. Mm. You know, it's, it's interesting. You said a very, uh, powerful and revealing word, which is control. Uh, so Schopenhauer defined life as something that fights entropy, something that fights entropy, that, that life itself is anything that changes its outside environment. That's life. And what we psychologically need as human beings, as all psychological, as all living organisms, is to be in homeostasis, is to always make sure that whatever it is that we're short on, that we, we, we fix by changing our outside environment. So this is why we move, right? Motion uh, comes from this need to change our outside environment so we can always stay in homeostasis. If we're hungry, we go find food. If we're thirsty, we go find water. So our psychological needs are the exact same way that we always need to restore psychological homeostasis by looking for whatever it is that 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 we're we're seeking and the way the body gets us to do things is by making us feel bad right the brain gives us discomfort to say you go need this you need that but the way it learns what we're missing is through past behavior that's how habits are formed so whatever will give us psychological relief the fastest right with the least expenditure of energy that's what we're going to go to again and again and again so if we're lonely we might pick up uh, the the phone and call a friend or we might check social media if we're bored we might read a book or we might turn on the television so knowing that insight that this is fundamentally what we're trying to do is to control our internal states by changing our outside environment to me that's incredibly empowering because it takes these big amorphous scary things right like the big corporations hacking our brains And it makes us realize, wait a minute, it's just a feeling, right? It's just a thought. That's all it is, right? It's not, it's not cancer. It's boredom, <laughs> right? And I can do something about that. So where did that start for me? It probably started for me. So I used to be a very fat kid. I used to be clinically obese. <laughs> uh, this was, you know, I grew up in the 80s. We didn't know how bad, uh, you know, all the Cheetos and uh, soda and all the crap we used to eat in the 1980s. You know, I have so many cavities from all the sugar I used to eat. Uh, and I was, I was not just fat, I was obese. I remember my, my mom took me to a, uh, a clinic and the doctor said, okay, here's this weight chart and here's the yellow zone. Uh, here's the red zone. And here you're over here in this like really bad category of, of clinically obese. And I think it was from that experience of one feeling out of control. So a long time I used to, for a long time, I used to blame the food companies And as much as I would blame them and said, oh, it's their fault, like I wasn't losing weight blaming the food companies. It wasn't, it wasn't changing anything in my life, right? And that's exactly what's going to happen with, te- with technology. Like nobody's going to fix this for us, right? The world is only going to become more distracting. So if we sit here and say it's all their fault, they need to fix it, our life is going to pass us by and we're still not going to have the lives we want. So I think it was from that experience of as a kid, uh, you know, I remember what, what, so what changed my life, this was way before the internet. Um, I saw this book at Barnes and Noble, which I don't even know if it exists anymore, but <laughs> the big bookstore back in the day, before Amazon, before the internet. 
The book is called The T-Factor. And The T-Factor, all it was was this little book. It's like a pamphlet that you could carry around in your pocket. And all it did was list out uh, the macronutrients in food, calories, carbohydrates, fat, protein. That's all it was. And I started using that, like just basically rough, rough guesses. Uh, and I, I must have been 12, 13 years old. And I started just using that, you know, more or less to figure out if I was eating too much or too little and educating myself on what is the food, what, what the contents of food. And I had no conception. I had no idea that a Coca-Cola uh, had something like 200 calories and I was having three or four a day. Well, right there, that explains my obesity. Um, and so when I started understanding what was going on and how I could change those behaviors, and then it started working, <laughs> right? Uh, I could see, you know, I could see results. And I think that's probably where my fascination with one, how is it that the food companies are so good at marketing their food to us in a way that makes it so palatable, right? How do they engineer their food in a, in a, in a way that makes us want to consume it? Uh, and so that there's a lot of consumer psychology that's very fascinating around the marketing side of that. Uh, but then also how we can take back control was very interesting to me as well. And so it's very much the same, same philosophy in all my work today. Yeah, it's like you uh, applied your methodology uh, to your life in a sense of identifying some form of trigger and then taking the steps before actually labeling them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there, there's definitely a lot of parallels between uh, our media diet and our food diet. Yes, and, 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 and for listeners seeing, seeing near Ayan right now, like it definitely worked. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, like, so, you know, it's not, it's, not, it's not preaching. It's not a pitch. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's still a struggle. <laughs> and today, what, what would you say, um, you know, your superpower is? My superpower? Well, I, I think my superpower uh, is the power to be indistractable. I think, you know, I made the title indistractable sound like indestructible. And that, that was very intentional. It's a made-up word, indistractable. But I wanted it to sound like a superpower. I wanted to, but the good news is it's a superpower anybody can have, right? You don't have to have uh, be bitten by a radioactive spider like Spider-Man or you know, have an invisible jet like uh, Wonder Woman. Anybody can be indistractable. And, and what would you say like your weakness or kryptonite is? What's my weakness? Um, my weakness is that I'm, I'm human. And I make mistakes like anyone else. Uh, you know, we're, 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 all, we're all human. <laughs> we never got that answer. No, well, yeah, but the problem is um, if he makes a lot of mistakes, then it's a decision. So it confuses me. <laughs> no, mistake repeated twice. The first time's okay. <laughs> Fair enough. And for you, what, just define for me success on the mission. Like where, where do you feel like your next, you know, your next uh, big um, milestone is? Uh, my next big milestone personally is, uh, my daughter is 14 and, uh, she's going to be off to college in a few years. And so my next big milestone is spending as much quality time as I can with her because it, it already tears me up inside thinking in a few years, she's not going to be in the house anymore. I'm going to start crying here in a minute if I talk about this too much, but that's my next big milestone is to really make the most of the few short years that I have with her until she's, uh, off to, to college or whatever she does next. So that's, that's my big milestone. And after that, I'll, probably write another book at some point. Uh, I don't know the topic quite yet, though. That is so beautiful, because I think what we're probably all in denial about most of the time is that all we have is is the now and then and then that's it. And I think you're truly empowering people to be in the now and take control of their lives. And the direct output of that is to really be in line with their values, which many of the times will be to be with the family. But of course, people can 
tap into whatever is true for them. But I think your mission and what you're doing, this although, as we discussed, can be used for evil, is truly beautiful and can be used for greatness. I appreciate that. Thank I'm you specifically so very, very jealous of the daughter because he's <laughs> one of the only dads that for sure knows how to put that time and you know like you, you that i believe you on every milestone like or die trying so but no people are reading the book and there's more dads yeah. i i'm optimistic i know but for him i say if i had to put an over under bet i know that daughter is going to have time with her father so <laughs> speaking of i'm actually meeting my daughter right now so i actually have to get going because i brought, tonight's our of dinner course. night together we're gonna go get some sushi <laughs> have a great time thank you so much for doing this and lots of luck Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank Take you care. so much. That's all for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider subscribing to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Also, if you have a moment, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and review our podcast on the platform you're listening to. This will help others find our show. And as always, if you know anyone who you think would enjoy our podcast, please share it with them. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back as usual on the first of the month. Real life superpowers. Up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. Real life superpowers.